You're listening to the Modern Web Podcast. For more podcasts, videos, and events, find us online at modern-web.org or follow us on Twitter at modern.web. That's M-O-D-E-R-N-D-O-T-W-E-B. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Modern Web Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Osell. I'm an architect at this.labs. Today, we're very excited to sit down and talk with Jenny Trong about state machines and state charts and mental health with X-State and Stately. Jenny, how are you doing today? I'm great. I'm excited to be here. Jenny is the head of operations and developer relations at Stately, I should mention as well. And I guess just to get us started, could you help introduce people to what that means? Like, what do you do on a day-to-day basis at Stately? So operations is like the financial management and administrative side of what I do at the startup. And developer relations is just another way of saying I talk to our users. So now, have you been involved with Stately since pretty close to the beginning of it? Or like, when did you get involved in the the company? Um, I would say I'm employee number two. So I've been involved since the beginning. I think April is when uh, David had started Stately. So I joined in June, mid-June. Oh, okay. So yeah, so very early on. So I was wondering if you could tell, because... What I've noticed in the industry at large is that we've started to see a lot of open source uh, libraries and projects sort of break off and become independent companies or be acquired by larger companies um, and sort of have this productization or growing up moment. And I was wondering if you could maybe explain some of the challenges, at least so that people could understand of taking something which is kind of a library that people know and and growing it up to being uh, a company of you know, of many people now, and I don't know where you have visions of taking it in the future, but like, what are some of the challenges that you've encountered that people maybe don't expect in that process? Well, um, XState was the original JavaScript library that Stately had built its tools upon. So most of our audience and uh, customers had come from that XState community. And um, I don't necessarily know too much about the challenges of how we This is complicated because um, with David creating Stately, it's more visual tool and less coding, but we also have a lot of those programmers and developers as our current audience using both of them together. And so um, some challenges was basically trying to make the visual tools less technical, but also not hit the, the part where it becomes really no code, if that makes sense. Um, and so... I'm not sure how to answer this. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's interesting. I, it would, well, what's interesting, I think, in some ways is that, you know, version five of XState, I think, was originally announced, or at least it was hinted at, maybe as far back as 2020. And, and, and I know mm-hmm. it's it's getting really close to uh, a public beta now, or, or maybe is in beta in the interim, I don't know. But it recently was announced it might be heading that way. And I remember seeing somebody sort of make a little bit of a joke that was like, Oh, it's it's been so long, but it's because the team is so busy building out all these other tools. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think that's what's got to be sort of interesting and complicated is that you go from kind of just being a maintainer of this one thing to now being uh, being cognizant of an ecosystem of surrounding tools and and things, which I think is quite interesting. Because if you've used the stately editor, it's kind of what you said. It's super intuitive. And it almost gives the impression of being a toy or something that was would be for 
maybe some play and learning, but not for serious modeling. But it's it's partially because you have so many opportunities to get to the code side of it. It isn't truly no code. You can inject code, you can um, configure it with code, or you can configure it visually. It's that ability to do both that I think makes it very effective. And so I guess what I was saying is that it must be interesting to kind of build up a team that's sort of in part helping to maintain the library, in part building this editor in the company that surrounds it, and just trying to find a good way to to have a rhythm for this whole ecosystem, at least on an operational level, has to be quite, uh, had been an interesting challenge to date. It has. Yeah, you're absolutely right about like finding that balance in between like, okay, we should focus on the open source part because that's basically where all of our um, traffic comes in. But then we should also focus on the other side where we're building tools that not only um, not only developers would use, we could just have your whole team come on board and collaborate with them, but also people that are non-technical at all, like the sales team could come on board and be like, oh, like I just got hired to figure to sell this app. How do I figure out how it works? You could just give them this this diagram versus, oh, here's the code. This is how the app works. <laughs> you know, it's funny too. I didn't know that you were involved with the developer relations part, part of things because that's another thing that really stands out to me about the company. And I was wondering if you could talk about, which is the company has been very, very consistently hosting these office hours. Um, which are densely informative, both about what's going on, what's coming up, uh, how to use things, and announcements about the library and the ecosystem. Can you talk about why the team is so committed to this format? I mean, I, I certainly know I appreciated it, but uh, you know, what is what are y'all hoping to accomplish with these? I think it's just being consistent with the community and kind of being an open book on on like what we're building and what we are building if it's useful to everyone that shows up to our office hours or that's in our community on all the types of social medias we use. So with being able to host these office hours, we can live chat with them or let them know, hey, these are the things we're planning on building. What do you all think to get like an input or what what will you find useful? And then, you know, give us suggestions because like when we build something, we don't want it to just be useful for us as a team. We want everyone to be able to use it. So, and it's also really nice to talk to the community because they give us different perspectives on how they use, whether it's our library or just our tools. I, I found out more and more recently when we do user interviews that people use X8 on the back end, which I originally thought, okay, it's JavaScript. It should be on the front end. So it's, it's really cool to discover. Yeah, that has been super fascinating is to find out about that. Like in, in your interviews and research that you've been doing, how have you been seeing the penetration of state machines? I mean, they've existed forever. I mean, that's something that David would always be the first person to tell you. These are not new concepts. <laughs> um, but I feel like at least in the web development space, the JavaScript space, uh, front end or back end, it felt like they weren't being talked about very much. Obviously, David was evangelizing them really hard. And it's hard to tell if after... A few years of that, if it's if it's slowly ramping up, if it really feels like it's gaining steam, it might be hard for you all because this is the world that you're immersed in all the time. But from the research that you've seen, like, have you seen a lot of newer users or a lot of enthusiasm from teams that are like, we've never used these before, we never really thought about them before, but but you know, all the things that y'all are putting out makes this really interesting to us. How do you all see that with your research sessions? How this is taking on in the community? 
So I see both sides. I see people who are very passionate about state machines and X8, but I also come across um, other users that are really intimidated because they try to learn X8 and it's it's a very steep learning curve that we're trying to solve currently. And um, they just either jump in and start using our studio and don't touch the code at all and just output those diagrams and share them or they start learning um x-state through youtube videos or front-end masters or through david's courses that he puts out and even it's it's weird because you have so many different levels of what people are interested in using the diagrams or uh, x-state for and um i'm trying to figure out what i what i can say about this <laughs> <laughs> yeah but, it's well another part of it that's interesting is that you know like you said, people are hitting this from many different levels. And I think that's mm -hmm. what I've seen on the teams that I've worked with, where I've met people that like conceptually they understand a state machine or a state chart is is just states with transitions between them. Mm -hmm. um, but the concept has had decades of of thought that gone in, that's gone into it and research that's gone into it. So there is immense complexity. Um, and I think like David and the rest of the team would say, you don't need to engage with that complexity. It's simply there when you have evolved to that point but it can be intimidating for people to first come into it because once you've get, gotten just beyond states and transitions, I think when you start understanding like the context and actors and submachines and sending signals, like it can get very, you almost feel like, wait, do I really wanna make this investment? But what's mm -hmm. been interesting again from the DevRel perspective is you've really done a lot to meet people there and with these like large series of videos that are walking people step-by-step step from the most basic concepts of state machines down to some of the more complicated ones to help people on that journey. And I think that's going to be good for the community um, because they have a powerful tool. They really shouldn't feel compelled to learn it all, but it's nice to be able to have that ability to pick it up over time. No, I completely agree. And they can always go back on those videos to reference from when they do get confused. Cause like you said, it does get really complex and my role is mainly to just get their, like to help them get their foot in the door, to introduce them. And then um, the other engineers are the team. They are the ones that can help the more advanced like machines. Mm -hmm. How does the user research phase that y'all are doing work? Like, do you, is it, is it demos and getting feedback on those demos? Is it having people use the tools? Is it, is it just having them show you what, what they do? Is it, is it all of that? Like, how do you all structure it to get information that's valuable to you? Well, we first started with just contacting, well, actually, no, we didn't contact anyone. We actually just posted on Twitter who's interested in chatting with our team. Mm. And that's how it all started. It was just optional, like, oh, I want to chat. Oh, I want some swag. Um, so we just have them reach out to us and fill out a survey. I think um, so far it's been once a year that we post out a stately tools or maybe an X-State survey on how you're using it. And if you'd like us to contact you, you know, just find us on Discord. And that's when we hold those chats. They tell us, um, like I said, all the cool different use cases that they're using it for and what they want us to build in the future. And that goes on like this big long list of what we should build, but we have so many ideas that it gets difficult. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> prioritization choose. is often the harder yes. part, right? Yeah. 
without maybe getting too specific, were there any, I love asking this to people that do user research, because I feel like anybody that's ever done user interviews always has at least one of these stories. But have you had any of these situations where you've sat down to interview someone about how they're maybe using state machines or X state or stately and what they said completely shocked you either in scale or, or scope or just what they were using it for? Do you have any sort of interesting stories along those lines that you could share that maybe the team learned from? Um, I, I sat on a chat last year and someone was using X state to build a like replica of this editor that we have, the stately editor, which is the visual tool and the code next, like just in parallel, they were trying to build the exact same thing, but for blind and deaf users, which I thought was super interesting wow. and super cool, but they were just doing it for fun. So unfortunately it wasn't anything that was like a big project that they had released. Um, I do, I actually really do want to catch up on that user and see where they are with that. Cause it was something like a weekend project that they were working on. That's really interesting. Yeah. That's why like, you know, even if you're not uh, certified or know what you're doing with user research and user interviews, if, if you're not doing it on your team, you should ask and push your team mm -hmm. to do them because you will be amazed what you will learn. Um, you know, I've worked on whole teams that shipped something to production and unfortunately waited until it was in production to hear from the users that it was not actually the tool they needed. Um, or, you know, you'll, you'll contact your users and find out that they have built these uh, ant paths or cow paths through your system to find the ways to do the things they want to do, regardless of what you wanted them to do or how you wanted them to do it. They are the most humbling thing you can do as a product developer or, a, or, a de or just a you know, software developer is to sit down with users and have them show you how they're using your software. I don't know if you would agree, but. Um, so we actually use our studio very often and we hold like weekly, uh, we call them editor hours. So we hold weekly mm -hmm. editor hours on our team where we just think of a random idea of what we want to build, just pick a topic or pick a device, like a microwave or an oven, for example. And then we just start building it. And then we find out all the little bugs and then we realize, okay, if I wanted to make something like this in real life, like how could I improve the experience? So we do that every week to try it. I guess it's kind of like inside the company QA. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a little, like a hackathon on state <laughs> machines, basically that, that happens a lot. Um, I, I find like that's a good way to learn, especially with state machines. I, I found myself earlier when I was playing around with the the stately editor to kind of get up to date with what the current state of it is. I found myself trying to model, even though I don't even play it that much, but I was modeling um, uh, how to play um, like card games, like Hearthstone in a state machine that, you know, you, you have a certain amount of time and then it's their turn and they can do certain things and you can do certain things. And it is fun to take something novel uh, because that's often the problem is it's like state mm. machines are around us everywhere. Um, but it's, it's like when you sit down, like, what should I make one of? You really just have to just pick any arbitrary thing and uh, just start going with it. And it, it'll sort of show its its value. Yeah. I mean, that was me a couple of years ago. I was the moment I discovered, like, oh, my gosh, everything in my life is a state machine <laughs> was the moment I was like, oh, no, <laughs> I'm going to start thinking like this step and this step and, and all the tr different transitions and stuff. And that also leads me to. Um, recently, recently I did a talk at Agent Conf and I was talking about the mental model of our brain and how we can think of the different, um, states and feelings and thoughts that we are in as like a state machine and how that can be very useful when it comes to 
how we take on every day. Yeah, that's I wanted to talk to you about that because um, as the time that we're recording this, Agent Conf is really just ending. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, there haven't been recordings. I don't know if there will be. You may be able to watch this talk as soon as you're done with this podcast. Uh, you may be able to watch Jenny's talk, but could you introduce the concept to us? Because I found this to be super interesting. I, I know it was a talk of of all parts of mental state, including stress and burnout and things, which I think we'll talk about. But like, how did you envision this as a state machine? Like, how does that sort of general model work out? So um, how I introduced the idea of your brain as state machines was kind of like your brain is like, think of your brain as Google Maps, right? Like you're always somewhere in one place at one time. And um, one of the models that I brought, it, like I introduced was the being asleep or awake, you know, always be in one state at, the, at one time. And so when you're in awake, you can have these different emotions, right? And then you can have these different movements. And those are all like different things that can happen at the same time, which we call parallel states. So your brain kind of like, works in multiple ways at the same time and and when you think of it um i described <laughs> i wish i said this on stage but i've repeated it so many times i described myself as like okay i can be hungry and angry and we described that as a hangry state right and so when we feel that we have these motivations to transition out of hungry into okay i'm going to eat and then get full and, and so on and so when it comes to the working place um you're constantly working and you're constantly putting your mind and your body through some type of stress, right? Or I don't want to say overload yet until that stress like caps to, to the top. When you start thinking of like your brain in every moment, you start thinking, how did I transition from like here to there? How did I sit here? And then all of a sudden I thought, oh, I'm hungry. So then now I have to get up and like go fulfill that action so then I don't sit in this state anymore because I don't want to sit in the hungry state right yeah that's interesting I like that I like also I like I also like the idea that um by modeling it as a state machine or a state chart you do have a little bit of the sense that it's not necessarily that you could even get to every other condition from the condition you're in it could be due to whatever reasons I can't be ecstatic at every minute of the day um and if I'm tired Maybe I can't get to feeling energetic or whatever else. And so, like you said, if you're in the hangry state, maybe I can't get to happy, but I can at least get to not hungry <laughs> or, or you know, sated. And then from there, maybe I can uh, do an activity that I enjoy. And then maybe that gets me to happy. I, I do like that because it does sort of say it's not like emotions, I guess, or states of your mind are such that you can just actualize whatever emotion mm. you want at any given point in time. We really are working with a finite amount of options um, and we maybe need to take a step to get us in the right direction. Um, is that kind of the idea? Yeah, that's the idea. Cause like going back to the um, idea of Google maps as our brain, you can't just like automatically pop up in one spot. You have to figure out the directions on how to get there. And so when you finally figure out where you are, like which mental state you're in, then you can guide your brain or your um your thoughts on how to get to the next state that you want to be in. And so how does this bring in the concepts of like stress and burnout and how a better ways to understand it? Like where, where does, how does the state machine sort of paradigm help us maybe understand or track uh, how that's affecting us? 
So first you start out with understanding what the different states of burnout are and they can disguise themselves in different ways because each and every one of us experience burnout differently. But um, with all the research that I recently did, I came across some articles that show like um, one of the first common states of you're going to transition into some type of burnout is you become overly excited for the type of work that you're about to do. And also another thing I wanted to, to mention was um, through the research that I did and um, the, the podcasts and articles that I listened to, I found out that stress is a completely different thing than burnout because burnout is just work-related and stress is like, your, it consumes like your, your physical, mental, emotional state of everything in your life. And so when you put stress aside and understand what burnout is and how it only affects your work-related um, life of work, uh, then you realize, okay, the first state that you would, uh, sorry, the first state that you would be in is that, oh, let's say you're really excited. You just got hired to do this job. You're in this position where this is your, your dream uh, position of what you've been wanting to do. And with that excitement, you start taking on more tasks and activities and then you realize okay like I can do this all the time throughout my weekend and just put my life on pause so then I can do all these things I enjoy well eventually you'll re you'll reach the next state where it's you're taking on too many things you're becoming overwhelmed then you realize okay even though I can do this you start doubting yourself should I be taking on 20 tasks like a week when I was only assigned 10 right um, once you start getting into that self-doubt, um, you reach the next state of burnout. And the most common five states of burnout that people experience, um, there's actually 12 uh, that like we actually experience. And um, there's a psychiatrist that I came across that wrote um, an article in 2021. His name is Herbert Frudenberger, which he's half German and half American, he wrote this article of the different 12 states of burnout that's actually amazing. And I would highly advise anyone to read it. Um, but we don't all experience all 12 states. So that's why we have the most f common five states that we just went through. So I went through the first one where we're overly excited, we take on the many tasks. Then the second state where we, we become doubtful of the optimism that we just had. And then the third state is like chronic stress where it's like, oh my God, I took on too much. Am I actually capable? Like the self-doubt gets stronger. You start becoming pessimistic. You start releasing that stress on your external life, not external life, but like life outside of work and your family and friends and your loved ones. And then you start um, physically not performing the best because you don't sleep well. And that takes you into the fourth state of burnout, which is like initial burnout. And I know that sounds like super confusing, but initial burnout is... Yeah, it sounds like you've been initially <laughs> burning out, but yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, initial burnout is like the severe part of like you are starting to dread working. So Monday comes around and you're not excited anymore and you're just like, oh my God, it's Monday. What else is there on my list that I have to do that I didn't complete yet? And you become unmotivated and you can't cope with stress and then it gets worse. But then um, that's when it does get worse, it leads you into the last state of burnout that we all commonly experience. And that's just very 
physically and mentally draining that I hope that we never get to. And with going back to look to the idea of state machines is that if you're able to understand and become more self-aware and notice uh, your mind and your body experiencing all these symptoms, then you can start realizing, okay, I'm in this state or I'm in this state and I'm about to reach like a more chronic state of stress, or maybe I'm about to get more burnt out. I don't want to transition into there. So you make a conscious effort to find different things that you can do to help cope with stress or different activities that will um, make work more fun. Um, And then that will help you transition out of those different states. I hope that makes sense. I know I'm using terms that can be very confusing. No, I, you know, not only does it make sense, I mean, I, I, I feel like maybe I and some of the people listening are maybe a little gobsmacked by those stages of burnout as we are currently projecting ourselves across them <laughs> um, in the various things that we're engaged with. I do love this idea of, um, of you know, discretizing or making things more discreet, stating, making these into states, because this is something that's worked really well as a parent as well. Um, my son has some issues uh with ADHD. And one of the ways that his teacher sort of helped us develop with him to deal with it is to like make him aware, like, Hey, you're in the green zone right now, or Hey, you're in the yellow zone now, or Hey, you're in the red zone right now. And that helps to say like, Oh, you're a little bit agitated. That doesn't, that's hard to quantify. It's hard for people to sense, but if you can put a, put a, that discrete transition on it, Hey, you're in the yellow zone right now. And it's like, Ooh, I need to do a certain amount of protective activities, or I maybe need to take a second, or I need to think about that. And, you know, if you're in the furthest one, you know, now it's a, a huge warning. And it's been very effective, both for communication and understanding, hey, where are you right now? What zone do you feel you're in? Or, you know, and also to communicate to him very clearly, get a lot of information across, hey, we feel like you're in this zone, what do we need to do to get out of it? And so that makes a lot of sense that that works then with the, these stages of burnout, that by putting a bit of a box around them by not letting yourself be 5% in this direction or that direction, uh, maybe kind of makes you a little bit more aware. It makes it, it makes it a little bit more tangible and maybe helps cut through the hopelessness because it does feel like I have some options to get back out of this state. I have some abilities, um, some strategies that no matter where I am in this box, these things can maybe help get me to a previous step or out of the cycle entirely. So I can see that being very hopeful for people. Yeah, and it, and when you start thinking about your current state and where you want to transition to, it becomes less intimidating than than like, oh my gosh, I'm sad. How do I stop being sad? Right? Like instead of asking those questions, you think of like, how do I transition out of sadness? Should I do something fun that puts me in a better mood? Should I go for a walk and feel less stress? Uh, so just like thinking in those terms can be helpful. You know, it's really interesting that you mentioned that stress and burnout are different from your research because, you know, I'm looking at some of these stages that you've mentioned and I've talked to people about burnout before and uh, talked to them about, uh, you know, crunch. Crunch is a big source of burnout, um, especially in the startup world. And I was t- sharing stories with some developers recently about crunch. And I said, it's what's weird about crunch is the worst story of crunch I can remember uh, completely destroyed the motivation of my team for almost nine months after like a, even just a short uh, crunch period of time. Uh, but 
it's also weirdly one of the things I'm most proud of, both what we produced and the camaraderie of the team and how well I got to know people over the course of that. It's a very weird thing. And what somebody said to me is they said, I think it has to do with your passion towards the towards the work. Um, it can be very rewarding if you're super engaged with it. And that's kind of what you were saying. So that's like a it's like it's like slamming an energy drink, right? It might make you feel alert and awake, but at some point the physical toll will that that bill will come due. Passion can be that thing which can sustain you for a period of time, but at some point there's just no there there anymore and there's just nothing in the well when you go there for motivation, for energy, for 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 any kind of stress uh, dealing with. But what was interesting to me is that what my team faced when we were done with that crunch wasn't uh, dreading work and it wasn't um, that portion, which I've experienced that type of burnout separately. It was just tiredness, like sore muscles almost. Like we just couldn't get ourselves to get back into the cadence of releasing quickly because whenever you did it, it was just like you were still too exhausted. You just couldn't exert much effort. Does that sound more like the stress portion you were mentioning or am I describing a different type of burnout other than the steps we were just talking about? That's... I, okay, so to answer your question, that to me sounds more like a stress related because when you have your body on performing high and you're physically like just on this high of like trying to, um, um, it's like a physical and mental high capacity that you're forcing your body to go through, but it's more stress related than it is a burnout related. And why I say that is because even though you were doing work, it was more uh, the performance of your body physical body that you were exhausting yourself and with burnout it's yes it's mental yes it's physical but it's just the related to the work Uh, yeah well in some ways it's like burnout you don't necessarily even have to be working long hours to mm -hmm. be burned out it doesn't have to accompany overwork it's just just one of the ways it, it can often happen but it could just be the work is particularly hard or you're just don't see the successes like it, yeah. it can be more mental in that way right like it can and it can also like that stress could lead to imposter syndrome which is another right. sign of burnout and when i first did the research i was also very confused on how stress differed from burnout but burnout is like you get this imposter syndrome then you become stressed that you won't get these tasks done then your optimism of like oh this was so much fun it it turned into this self-doubt of like i can't actually complete these things that i said i would do um and and so when it becomes stress towards the work-related activities that's when it becomes burnout related and and stress is something that we normally experience So like a very light level of stress that humans experience is actually good for us because then we get motivation from that or we get something, some type of um, like releases, neurotransmitter releases in our brain that like help us feel satisfied, like, oh, I'm going to accomplish something. It's like a reward aspect. Um, And then a high level of stress is, is like too much of that where we're hoping for something that we don't know we can achieve. Yeah, I feel like that that is one of the key differences is that in points when I've experienced burnout, it was usually a feeling of helplessness, like a feeling that when I was in high stress situations, as long as I felt like I had control, like I could not full control of everything, but like I still um, 
I could control the outcome through if I just work hard and if things broke the right way, this is going to succeed. But I feel like in times when I've experienced burnout the worst, it was a feeling of, well, I can do as much as I want to. Success is, would be a miracle if it happens. Realistically, we're just mar- it feels like a march towards failure. And that's not purely just a lack of optimism. And a lot of times that's, that's what brings on the lack of optimism is just this feeling that it doesn't matter, that it's just going to fail. And so sometimes the less control you have, right, that could, mm-hmm. that could lead that way. That's like that difference. That's the difference between feeling like, yeah, let's rally the troops. Let's do this. We can, we can get there versus just ugh, no matter what we do, there's always another problem. There's always another thing that's come up, another system breaks, another deadline slips. And mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that really does beat you down. Yeah. And with stress, you have this expectation and like this goal that you want to reach. And like going back to the difference with burnout, you have this goal, but you have no idea how to get there. And you are so stressed that you cannot think clearly on how to achieve these things. So then you're just kind of lost. You get this feeling of like hopelessness and lostness. This is where I, you know, some, a tactic that I had gotten from a project manager for a client of ours once, which was so funny and it was so easy that I have now stolen it because it's something that, you know, if you're a cynical developer here, especially somebody that hears when project managers suggest something, you know, and you're like, oh, another one of these things, you're going to listen to me say this and you're going to think it's ridiculous. I'm telling you, try it for a month and tell me if you don't think it works. What he had the team do was said uh, on a scale of one to five, no, no, not even five, it was four because he didn't want anybody to be able to pick the middle. If On a scale of one to four, how are you doing? And that was it, a scale of one to four. And I thought, what a bunch of ridiculous nonsense this is. But what happened was the first couple of weeks, I was like, whatever, I'm a three, I'm a four, whatever. But then what happened is after a couple of weeks, I knew I was gonna have to do it anyways. So I thought, I'm gonna take a second. How am I feeling? Am I really a three? Am I a four? Am I a two? And then I also got to see with my team, how's my team feeling? And like when twos and stuff would roll in or whatever, you're like, oh, wow, like that release last week really took it out of people. I was amazed this one question to force myself to stop and just take inventory was powerful enough to um, really make me feel either that things were going better than I thought or making me aware of things that were starting to deteriorate or go worse than I had realized. And, you know, with these states that you're talking about, that's what I like is this moment of inventory. It helps with the inventory. If if you're like, am, what am I? Does this box sound like it's correct? Did I transition to this box? And if you check in with yourself regularly, I think that might help with detecting where you are on this because some of these things like um, dreading going to work, you may not realize it in the moment because it can happen so gradually, but if at some moment you're going to have that realization, wait a second, I find myself really being excited about Fridays. I never used to be that person. I never used to be the stressed out person on Sunday afternoons realizing I was going to have to go back to work. I used to just think every day was great. If you check in with yourself sometimes, that can be useful. I don't know if you've ever tried this, but... um, I, I just I've I've stolen that and use it now on so many teams because it's it's such an, an easy cheap way to get people to introspect, uh, which can be really powerful. It is powerful. It is something that I tried doing um, sometime last year, where I would daily do that check in. But 
I think over four or five months, I started being dishonest and I just kind of ignored it and didn't want to take the time to do that. So what I recently, I, I think because it's a consistent thing that you force yourself to do, um, it becomes like another thing you check off the list, but that could also be my personality. So um, I'm glad that you mentioned like tips and tricks that we could do because I wanted to talk about some brain hacks that I recently started doing within the past couple months. Um, these brain hacks are four happy chemicals that I do one exercise once a day or a couple times a week when I remember. And I think of the acronym DOSE, D-O-S-E, which stands for the four happy chemicals in our brain that we can release. Um, we trick our bodies into being less stressed or being like just more calm in the moment. And um, DOSE stands for dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins. And so with these brain hacks for dopamine, we can um, think of dopamine as some rewards, feeling satisfied. So it could be something as simple as once a week or a couple times a week, you ask yourself, what am I grateful for? Or where am I between one through four? And I say three things that you list that you're grateful for, because the first one you're probably just going to throw out there. You're just going to be like, okay, whatever. I'm grateful for a good hair day. Health, family. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. The second one, you're usually going to lie because you're like, okay, I need to get like something down. So then I think, okay, I'm grateful to have my phone near me. Um, and just in case there's an emergency. But by the third item, you start thinking, what am I grateful for? And then you start becoming honest. And that's the moment where your body starts thinking, okay, like when you read these three things out loud, you will actually start feeling the release of dopamine. You're just like, yeah, I am. I am grateful. So like, it's just little reminders that we could do and you don't have to do it every day, but that's something I would do if I need some dopamine release from my brain. Oxytocin, we think of like a very warm, loving, cuddly chemical that um, when it's released, it makes us feel like happy and like um, our hearts are like not heavy, but like just full. Uh, you could do some exercises like hugging yourself. I, I actually didn't find that very comforting at first because I, 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 sorry, tongue twisters. I actually love hugs from people, but when I hug myself, it just kind of feels like lonely. So I start watching YouTube videos of little kittens and puppies for at least one to two minutes. And that will release the serotonin, put a smile on our face. And then like, maybe your face will get warm and you're like, oh, I released some serotonin. I feel better. Um, I can now take on like a couple tasks that I was intimidated by, or maybe that I didn't know I could finish by the deadline. I'll just start. Um, going back to dose, there's serotonin, which is my absolute favorite. One of the activities I do, I might sound crazy when I do this, but no one's judging, you know, like you're just trying to make yourself feel better in the moment. Uh, serotonin, I just count to 10 in laughs. And I know that sounds ridiculous again, but it really does help. You, you might be nervous um, that you can't complete, for example, this blog post by tomorrow. Uh, or let's say I'm about to go on this podcast with you. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, like I can feel myself like shaking. I'm a little nervous. I'm going to release some serotonin by laughing. So I count. I go, ha, 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 and, and now so, you're laughing naturally, yeah. right? You're only at four and already you're laughing naturally. Yeah. And it's incredible because fun fact, our physical body cannot, know, like it cannot determine the difference between 
me fake laughing, mimicking your laughter versus me actually laughing. And so it's a challenge that I put myself through when I start feeling like any type of doubt or any type of like, oh, I have no motivation or I don't know where to start. Like I'm confused on this next thing I need to achieve by the end of the week. So I'm like, okay, let's just laugh. And I count to 10. I can usually never get past six, but this is something I want people to try, whether it's on their own or with their friends. It's just a nice way to release serotonin and like lighten up the mood. Last, we have E for endorphins. Um, and remember, it's dose. So E, endorphins is like, I don't remember what. Um, I, all I know is that to release endorphins, you should either exercise, move around, or eat dark chocolate. And the reason why I say dark chocolate is because I love food. And if you can eat a certain amount, it's usually... Uh, I forgot the grams, the amount. I, I usually eat half of a bar of some type of dark chocolate. I'd advise you to look up the amount if you're not really into sweets. But it's the cacao inside the dark chocolate that helps when you digest. It helps your brain trigger like, oh, we need to release some endorphins. So then you actually feel a little bit better. And that's why people start craving um when you don't have endorphins after a while, uh, you start craving some type of sweets, sweet, sweet toots and desserts and stuff. So that's related in a way. But those are the fun little brain hacks that I advise people to do when they feel like they might be, whether it's burnout related or stress, you just feel like you're in a state that you don't want to be in. You're just uncomfortable. You want to get out of it. This is something that will help you feel better in the moment. Yeah, I, I, I like two things about it. One is that I didn't realize until I was listening, you go through that list that while I understood each of these four uh, chemicals being different from one another, I found that I think of them as interchangeable as all just being happiness things. Uh, and so it is, it is good and useful to see them as separate and motivated and triggered in different ways that you really, there's no one activity maybe that's going to do the whole solution that you, you want to do a variety of different things to, to get to you. So I certainly like it at that point. And I particularly liked this idea of uh, making yourself come up with three ideas for something that you're grateful for, because not only is this great for that exercise, but this is just good for team leadership or leading any type of brainstorming session. I immediately recognized it as being every group needs to go through that. Whenever you put a question on the table, you need to let them get the easy answers out first. You need to let the jokesters get their flippant answers out and let everybody release some steam. And then you just keep sitting in the awkwardness and then the real answers start flowing. And uh, I just, I just, I feel that deeply to be true. So I, I, I love that idea for getting yourself to go through the same process. I'm glad. Yeah, I'm glad you found them useful. And three is actually a pretty magical number uh, from my personal experience with doing these activities, usually by the third or fourth time, I start becoming more comfortable and making it more normal in my routine. And I don't do it every day, but every couple of days I do them. And then I, I get excited. Like, oh, we're, this is the timer I put on to do a one minute dance throughout my day. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. And someone says, oh, your alarm went off. Like, oh, sorry, I need to do my, I need to do my 10 laps. Hang on. You can do them with me if you'd like. Uh, that's, that's really good. So now that you kind of had this vision, you, you had this model, you did this research and I'm sure, you know, it was, it was useful and meaningful to you. 
are you now like the matrix? Are, do, is it just everything is state charts now for you? Like, have you started to see this in all parts of life or what is, what is next or where have you tried to apply this thinking to maybe that you hadn't previously now that you've kind of had this experience of, of doing this sort of mental modeling, uh, of the brain and, and moods as a, as a state chart. Is there any other places you've started to see it maybe more prominently? Um, this is going to sound really funny, but I started noticing it in my dog when I was teaching my puppy who just turned two more tricks. Uh, it, it's kind of like um, a reward system. So each time I make them do a trick and I'm frustrated, I keep doing it. I get more frustrated. Then I think, okay, I'm going to take a step back. My mental model needs to come in and figure out, do I want to stay frustrated or do I want to like feel relieved and just do something so I make that conscious transition into doing something new. they know what to do, like sit. And then I think of their brain as the same thing. Like they're frustrated. They want to eat something because they're hungry. So they want to just keep doing the things that they've already known before learning the new tricks, right? So I think of, I, I use the mental model and thinking of like what my dog is thinking. Um, and then I put it into like the different routines. So I notice uh, there's times where, like certain times a day, they go and they sit by the door because they're used to going out at that time. And, and then I realize, oh, like they're on this routine. But what if um, I could teach them to ring a bell every time they just feel like I need to go out versus just just only going there at 8 a.m. every morning. Mm. So um, I haven't really applied it to my personal life outside of working, but I, I feel like I should do that um, because it could help with different habits that I want to break or just eating healthier because I find myself throughout the day, I could have time for a snack in between meetings, or I could just like eat this bar of chocolate and then <laughs> carry on with my day. I think what would be fascinating to, to push the analogy forward, maybe in a, in a version two of the speech, if you're able to give it or this talk, if you're able to give it up more is I'm curious then, you know, because state machines, right, you can have these like agents and things that are sort of uh, subordinate to a to a like a, I don't know what the right word is. I don't know if parent is the right word, but some sort of state machine can pass signals down to these like different agents in their own state machines. And so if we model all of our own states in such a way, you know, we're all accepting signals from our team, from our company, obviously from society as well, if we want to broaden this out forever. Um, and it would be super interesting to think of how to envision the state machine of a team as both a composite of the states of its members as well as its own sort of independent thing. Because I think that's sometimes you can find that, like a, a team might be, um, individual people could be in a really great place, uh, the team might be really flagging, or the team might actually be doing really well, but people aren't for some reason. I, I know as a manager, I've encountered all different versions of this where it just seems like the team is out of sync with where the individuals are in whichever direction. So it, it's, it'd be interesting to take this analogy one step further to see kind of how our, how our state machines are interrelated in that way, um, that, that we don't operate in a vacuum entirely. Yeah, and that actually what you just said reminded me of um, something that we do at Stately is that even though we can see the progress of what we're putting out there, what we're building, um, we we have a optional monthly survey that our teammates just fill out and it's all um a traffic light like answers are red yellow or green on how we feel at these different points of 
whether it's this cycle or at this moment, it's however you feel, but you fill these surveys and then you get to see um, the, not the state chart, but like just the different areas where like it's the analytics where we all are individually and how that looks all together when we've completed like this one feature that we just released. Well, I'm really glad that we had this opportunity to talk about this topic because I do think that people will often push this aside as like, oh yeah, it's good to know and things like that. But you know, I, I've seen in just many industries where this is becoming part of success at all levels. And what I mean by that is that, you know, I, I like video games a lot. And so when when sort of video game streaming really became popular, you had these people that would just say, I'm gonna stream. 17 hours a day, every day, because I'm 20 and I can do that. And then they would burn out and and suffer. Their well-being, their their way of making money would suffer uh, because they would lose their audience and things like this. And so what you started to see is that as this industry got more professionalized, suddenly making sure that people were in good physical state, making sure they were getting good nutrition, making sure they were, had good sleep schedules and making sure they had people that were helping them organize their life was really important because they wanted to optimize that performance in a place where endurance was necessary, right? Where you needed to keep being able to show up each day and operate at that high level. And so I think talks like this and ways of dealing with this is really important because if you're listening to this and you're young and you're like, I'll just push through, I haven't really experienced this burnout yet. Trust us, it's at the end of everyone's rainbow eventually <laughs> if you push too hard. Um, but realistically, you know, like you said, if you don't, if you blow through those warning gates and you get to those final stages, the recovery time is not linear. I mean, I don't know if that's what the research shows. That's certainly what my experience has shown. But the further you push into this, it's almost like an exponential payment to get back out of it. Um, so catching it early is such a tremendous savings. It's like catching a bug in the design phase as opposed to once it's already pushed to production. It's so much cheaper to catch it early and so much more quicker. So I think, you know, conversations like this for, is a good reminder for people uh, because we, we do need it. I mean, it's, it's important to being successful as, as developers, as, as people in industry, and just as friends, partners, <laughs> you know, as uh, humans. pet owners. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you said it perfectly. Well, wonderful. So we, we are getting to the end. And as, as we like to do, we, we like to talk about something fun. So something I did not introduce you as at the top of the show is that you are seemingly a donut connoisseur. Now, I saw on your Twitter feed recently there was a steak donut. I'm going to think that that is not going to be something you are going to stand behind. Uh, Absolutely not. No, it was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, maybe give us a, 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 a taste, if you will, of, you know, your favorite types of donuts. Like, are, are, you, are you like a traditionalist? Like, that's kind of where I find myself sometimes is like, I'll take just a normal glazed like that's my thing, or do you look for the extravagant ones, uh, the the croissant mixed ones, the the wildest toppings? Like, what are you looking for in your donut adventure? I I think it's funny that you find the croissant ones extravagant, but um, no, when when I just want a donut, like my go to would probably be a yeast dough strawberry frosted, mm. or um, a croissant dough, strawberry frosted with custard filling, like a Bavarian cream. It really just depends my mood, but strawberry frosted is, is my go-to. 
So you were just at the conference overseas. Was that is that something that you look for? Is it that donuts find you, or is it that you go searching for them when you travel? Both. Um, when I get to a new place and I do find myself near a donut shop, I will go towards it. And um, I, I actually don't know where it all started. But it's just something that I've just always loved. And it's funny, it's not just sweets. It's just donuts because I don't like cakes. I don't like muffins or brownies. I, I just love donuts. And I think it's just the fascination of like how the dough is after every bite, uh, whether it's cake, yeast, croissant, flour. There's just all the different types of dough and all the ways that people make donuts is what I find fascinating and the texture. And, and yes, there's crazy toppings, but sometimes it can get overboard with this the different sensory issues with different mm -hmm. flavors that salty and sweet are fine. But when it's maple bacon, I'm not the biggest fan of that one. Oh yeah. I should be from where I am in the Midwest. That should be my favorite, but uh, I don't know. Sometimes just a good, like, like an apple donut, you know what I mean? In the fall, like uh, mm -hmm. sugar donut, things like that. Ooh, that, that can be good. Are, are you, are you a snob when it comes to donuts? Like, can you be okay at a Krispy Kreme or does it have to be like a, a nice bakery at this point? Like, has your donut palate gone too far for you to in enjoy the fast food donuts? Um, I'm embarrassed to say this. I'm okay with Krispy Kreme, but the oh, one place, <laughs> the okay one place I, I will not go to is Dunkin' Donut for a donut oh, okay. or, or the coffee. All right. If you're listening to us in Northeast of America, we apologize. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's interesting. You know, it's so funny too, because like sometimes it really takes till you find the right one to activate it. Like I know for me, cupcakes, never, I never understood them. Like I, I, I liked them. Okay. If they were there, but I didn't really get it. But then I lived outside of DC and uh, they had this store there called Georgetown cupcakes, which I mean, maybe if somebody's listening, they're like, Oh my goodness, of course, like the most touristy place ever. But um, when we lived there, they were still pretty new. And when I first had that and had like kind of a nice construction of one, like really fluffy with a really good uh, frosting and stuff on top, I was like, oh, now I get it. Um, and it can be kind of hard sometimes to find that again. But uh, but when you do have your mind opened up, uh, you know, that can be fun with something like this. I think it's the every donut that you eat is not exactly the same. Because mm -hmm. it just depends on how long it's been sitting, the dough, and how long it's been fried on the fryer. And sure, Krispy Kreme has this whole, like, uh, conveyor belt, but not some donuts get burnt, and some donuts are shaped smaller than the others, and so they fry faster, and so on. So it's just that I, I'm fascinated with every single donut that I come across. <laughs> well, I should say at the end here, hashtag not sponsored, and uh, I'm sure we'll get a lot of thanks from all the local donut shops from people that are listening to this and now have run out to get a snack really quick. Um, but that is going to do it for us today. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this Modern Web Podcast. Thank you, of course, to our guest, Jenny. Uh, as we say, the conversation does not stop here. You can find Jenny on Twitter at Jenna. That's J-E-N underscore A-Y-Y underscore. Uh, you can find me online at RoboCell. As for the podcast, you can find us online at moderndotweb.com or on Twitter at modern.web. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks. Come on. Come on, everybody. This podcast is sponsored by this.labs, a framework agnostic consultancy that specializes in JavaScript. You can find them at this.co slash labs. That's T-H-I-S-D-O-T dot 
co slash labs. For all of your friends and you.